Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. You know, uh, sometimes in ministry you have to deliver hard truths, and as much as I don't enjoy it, I'm going to have to be the bearer of bad news this morning. Uh, School is upon us. A new school year is here, so... I don't want to get booed off the stage or anything like that, but I think it is worth acknowledging at least. Summer has uh, gone by pretty quickly. It's been pretty busy for all of us, I know, or at least speaking for myself and those of us that I've talked to, especially compared to last summer when everything was canceled. Uh, But a new school year is upon us. And so for that reason, as a church, what we want to do over the next few weeks is to take some time in our sermons over the next month or so uh, to talk about the things that will be helpful for us to take back to school. Now, I'm assuming that parents and kids have or will be doing back-to-school shopping here. If they haven't already, will be here in the coming days, and that's important for school supplies and new clothes and everything with that, and unfortunately, we're not going to be helping with that at all. But What we want to do instead is over the course of the next few weeks is to be talking about things that as a church family we think are important, things that are key for our kids to take with them back to school. Uh, We're going to be talking about traits, practices, habits that can transform our lives, they can transform our schools, they can transform our world around us if and when we put them into practice. But at the same time, this is not a series, I want to put the disclaimer up front, this is not a series just for kids. I didn't just give you a free pass to drop your kids off at the door and go do something else for an hour on your Sunday mornings for the next month. Uh, the things we're going to be talking about in this series that are absolutely essential, uh, they, they are absolutely essential, excuse me, for anyone who desires to walk with Jesus, wherever that might be, whether you're going back to school, just going into your work again, wherever it might be, we think these things are important and can transform our lives no matter where we might go. Since the angle of this series is going back to school, and I'm not going back to school this year, I don't mean to rub that in, but I'm not, um, and no one under my roof is going back to school, I'm going to need some help as we go along throughout this series. And so, uh, over the course of this series, I'm actually going to preach the first two weeks. I'm going to preach on prayer today, and we're going to talk about service next week. And then the week after that, uh, Ben Petrovics is going to be preaching. He knows this already. I'm not telling him this as I'm telling all of you. Um, On the value of Scripture uh, in the third week. And then Ike's going to preach the last two weeks on the need for uh, godly community. And so that's where we're headed over the next few weeks. I just want to share that with all of you up, up front. My hope, my prayer has been and is still and will be over the course of this series that it will be a blessing for all of us, regardless of your age, regardless of if all your routines are changing here in the next couple weeks with going back to school or if none of them are changing at all. uh, The hope is that uh, we'll be talking about things that will be um, hugely beneficial for all of us, wherever we might be this fall. Like I said already, today the topic at hand is to talk about prayer. And my guess, or, or maybe a better word, is that my fear is that when I say that today we're talking about prayer, at least some of you, your defense went up automatically. That you've been around church long enough and you've heard enough sermons on prayer to where when you hear that's what we're talking about today, your immediate thought is that, well, I'm going to get a 30-minute guilt trip this morning about how I don't pray enough. I'm going to leave with a to-do list of of five ways to improve my prayer life, and then I'm going to be pretty good at it for a week or so, and then I'm going to forget, and then I'm going to feel 
all guilty all over again. And I, if that's where you're at this morning, if that's anywhere remotely close to what you're thinking and feeling as I'm talking this morning, let me at least relieve your stress a little bit and say that's not the point of this sermon. I'm not up here this morning to uh, make you feel bad that you don't pray enough. What I want to do this morning is to um, ease our nerves a little bit and tell us instead uh, about what is available to us if and when we do pray. I've already broke, broke the bad news. We're going back to school. I don't want to double down and make everyone feel terrible if they don't pray enough. Uh, but what I want us to see, I hope that you do pray more in response to this sermon, but my goal is not to shame you into doing that. My goal is to show you what Scripture says is available to us if and when we do pray, and out of that, we can grow in our life with God. And we can, instead of feeling bad that we don't do enough, we can be excited about the possibilities for our lives and the possibilities for the world around us when we make prayer a priority. So to do that, this morning, I want to focus in on a passage of Scripture that maybe at first glance isn't all that concerned with prayer, but it is concerned with inviting us in to experience God's presence in our lives. And one of the ways that we experience God's presence in our lives on a daily basis is through a life of prayer with God our Father. And so if you will turn with me in your Bibles or follow along on the screens, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. Uh, we're going to unpack Romans 8, verses 14 to 27 over the course of the sermon. I want to start by reading Romans 8, verses 14 to 17 for us. The Apostle Paul writes, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. There's a difference between being a servant and being a child. A servant has access to the person who is in charge as long as it is for a, a work-related reason or you can justify, you can get on the calendar and get to be in the master's presence. A child has access to their parent regardless of the day, the, the time of day, regardless of the situation. A child always has access to their parent. And within this letter of Romans, Paul has been making the case over chapter 6 and 7 and into chapter 8 that apart from Jesus, we are trapped in slavery under sin. We're servants. We're unable to free ourselves. But Jesus has come to bring us that freedom. And that freedom moves us from that position of being servants into the position of being children. From servants who are trapped under the oppression of sin and the natural byproduct of sin, death, into freedom that comes from being brought in to be a part of the family of God. That's the thesis statement, if you will, of the entire passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. That's guiding everything Paul is saying. If you are led by the Spirit of God, if you have said yes to following Jesus, that means that you are without a doubt God's child. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity that comes to dwell within us, is our confirmation that we are God's child. And that confirmation brings with it freedom. It doesn't bring with it a checklist of things that you have to do if you want to stay in the club. It, it brings transformation, and that is absolutely true. It brings change. It changes our lives. But 
That transformation comes in response to the fact that we have been made God's child through the process of being adopted into God's family. And Paul explains the significance of what that adoption means. With that very specific term there in verse 15, from the version we read from, it's translated adoption to sonship. Now, now the fact that it's translated as sonship does not mean that it's only for sons and it's not for daughters. But it's a way to describe the process of adoption within the Roman Empire. Adoption in the Roman world, adoption that Paul and the first readers of this letter of Romans would have been familiar with, was not like adoption in our world today. Adoption in the Roman Empire was never done out of benevolence or goodness that you, that you saw a kid who needed a family and you brought them into your own home. It was always done with the idea in mind of making sure that your family line was going to be continued after you were gone. And so, for example, Julius Caesar, ruling about 100 years or so before Paul is writing this letter of Romans, uh, is getting older in years. He has no legitimate heirs uh, that were in line to take the throne after he was gone. And so he adopts his nephew, Octavian, who eventually comes to be known as Caesar Augustus, to be his son. Julius does not adopt Octavian because Octavian was a young orphan and had no family, and Julius was the closest relative, and so he took him in out of the goodness of his heart. He adopts him for the sake of making sure the family lines continued, for making sure that there is clearly someone in place to take over the throne once he is gone. It's purely a matter of good, practical business and politics. And I don't take the time to say all of that because I was assuming that all of you were just dying for a refresher on the history of the Roman Empire this morning. I say that because that is what would have been in the mind of Paul and his readers as he talks here about God adopting us into his family. And yet, the way God goes about adoption would have sounded strange to the, the readers of this letter, to the people that Paul is writing this letter to. In their mind, if you only adopt someone to continue your family line, then, then you only adopt someone if you don't already have a son. And if you don't have a son, and you go through this process of adopting someone, you only adopt one person. Because if you adopt a whole bunch of people, it just makes things confusing. It, they're figuring out who's the one who's actually supposed to take over after you're gone. You only give the status of sonship to someone for your own sake, not for theirs. And if we're following along with Paul, if we're tracing the metaphor he's using throughout these chapters, Paul's making it clear God already has a son, Jesus. And so if God was a good Roman, there's no need for him to adopt anyone. And yet that is exactly what our God does. Our God, who has no need to adopt anyone, makes it possible that for all people to be his children, to be co-heirs with Christ. We don't deserve it. God doesn't need us. Yet he makes that available to us because of his perfect love for us. And that perfect love redeems us out of the servitude of sin and into the family of God. And being brought into the family of God brings with it an intimate relationship with the God of the universe. Paul says there in verse 15 that because we've received this adoption to sonship, we are able to cry, Abba, Father. Now, now that word Abba is not a reference to the band, in case you were wondering. I thought that would get more laughs, especially from the young crowd right here, but I guess not. Uh, th that word Abba is a word for intimacy. Uh, it's an Aramaic word, the language that Jesus and the disciples would have spoken most of the time. It, it's the way Jesus speaks to God the night before He's hung on the cross. 
when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. When you're at the end of your rope, uh, when, when you're at your most desperate, our natural tendency is to go to those that we have a closest relationship with, those that we know most intimately, to cry out for help to those who know us best. I, I don't think, I haven't been trying to hide it, but I don't think I've shared this with too many people here, but my, my top front four teeth here are all actually fake. Uh, here, I'm glad there wasn't any gasps or anything like that. That's good. But, but these front four teeth are all fake. And the reason why that's the case is because when I was a senior in high school, I had an accident, I fell, and I chipped those front four teeth pretty badly. And now when it happened, it was raining, and I was by myself, and I didn't know what to do. I just knew that I was in pain, and so I just started calling people in my family. I called my mom. She didn't answer right away, and so I called my dad. I had forgotten in the midst of the chaos that my dad and my sister were actually at a wedding when all this was happening. My dad was standing as a groomsman in a wedding. And my sister's watching the wedding, and I just start calling them frantically. My dad doesn't answer. My sister doesn't answer. In hindsight, it's a good thing they didn't, because, I mean, the story would have been better, but it's a good thing that they didn't answer. But the reason why I forgot all those things, the reason why I was just calling and trying to get someone to pick up the phone is because when you're in the midst of chaos, when you're in the midst of that desperation, you go straight to those that you have the most intimate relationship with, and Jesus is doing the same thing when he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke's account of that night, he includes a detail. Jesus is in so much distress that he sweats drops of blood. In the midst of intense distress, in the midst of that, of everything that's going on, knowing that in less than 24 hours he will be dead, Jesus cries out to God and addresses him as Abba. A word, maybe the closest parallel we have today is, is calling a dad Papa or something like that. A, a word for how a child speaks to their dad. Jesus prays to his father that if there is any other way that salvation could be delivered to humanity that didn't involve him going to the cross, that, that, that he would be willing to do that. But at the end of the day, he resolves that God's will would be done. And Paul takes that same term, that Jesus uses when he's praying in the garden, and he, he uses it here to tell us that that is the degree of intimacy available to us as God's child. There's some people in life, maybe people you work with, maybe people you just don't know all that well, that if you're going to get in touch with him, with them, uh, you, you reach out ahead of time, you say, hey, you know, call me when you're free, you, you send them an email, say, hey, what's your schedule look like this week when maybe we can talk or something like that. And there's some people in your life that if you want to talk to them, you're close enough with them, you just pick up the phone and call them. And Paul says here that there is no barrier to entry to access to our Father. You don't have to call God's secretary and set something up when he's free. You don't have to go through a waiting period. You don't have to send someone else in your place. Because of Jesus, you have the offer of intimacy that a child enjoys with a parent with the perfect creator of the universe. But just like how that intimacy didn't deliver Jesus out of all suffering, Paul also tells us here that the same is true for us. The access and intimacy we have with God does not mean we avoid all pain and suffering in this world. It means that when we endure suffering, we do so with the knowledge that suffering is not the end of the story. Because of Jesus, our hope in the midst of suffering is that it will not last forever. That because Jesus is resurrected, we will be resurrected as well. And that enables us to be able to suffer with hope. 
knowing that even in the midst of our suffering, God does not let go of us. That's the hope available to us because of the fact we have been adopted into God's family. You might be thinking at this point that this isn't much of a sermon on prayer because I haven't mentioned the word prayer in quite a while, but this is the foundation. What Paul lines out here is the foundation of a life with God in prayer. If we don't get who we are before God right, we will get everything else wrong. We don't come before God in prayer as some sort of daily or weekly check-in meeting with a work colleague. We don't come before God in prayer as a servant reporting for the day's orders from our master. We come to our God in prayer as a child coming before our parent. And when that's our foundation in prayer, when we are freed to be in God's presence as we're being formed to be people who are more like Him and then sent out into the world as His people, and wherever that might take us, the next section of this passage, verses 18 to 27, show us that we go with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that presence fills us with the expectation for the day when we will dwell with God fully. So let's read the next section here, verses 18 to 27. Paul continues, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought it into the freedom and glory, and brought into, excuse me, the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who, who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Because of the truths of the passage we read first, that because of Jesus we've been adopted into God's family, we've been given an inheritance that we don't deserve, Paul lines out in this passage, we are able to live in this world with hope and joy, no matter our circumstances, because of the access to God we have available to us through prayer and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this is not just something that Paul feels in his heart, contrary to any and all evidence around him. That, that verb in verse 18, at the beginning of the passage we just read, it's translated, I consider. It's a word for accounting. Paul's not saying, I consider, in the sense that he's chosen you know, the, the, the option that's going to make him feel the best, or something like that. He's saying that he's run the numbers. He's thought about it long and hard. He's made all the calculations. He's played it all out. And because of that process, he has reached the informed conclusion that the sufferings of this life are minuscule in comparison with the glory that is to come at the return of Jesus when all things are made new. And yet I know how that statement sounds at first glance. When you're in the midst of suffering, being told that it's not that bad is about the last thing you want to hear. Uh, the comedian Brian Regan tells a story about getting his wisdom teeth pulled. 
He says he got his, uh, there's a lot of teeth in this sermon, I just realized. Anyway, uh, but he said when he got his wisdom teeth pulled, he only got two pulled out. And he says you never want to tell that story because no matter what crowd you're in, if you start talking about getting wisdom teeth pulled, people will ask you how many you got pulled, and you'll say you got two pulled, and everyone around you will say that they got four pulled, and therefore they had it way worse than you, and and you have no idea what it's like to be in pain because they had four wisdom teeth pulled, and it's a whole thing. And that's almost what it sounds like Paul is saying in these verses. We might, we might read what Paul says here and think that Paul would show up at the funeral of one of our loved ones and tell us uh, that we just need to get over it because there's a light at the end of the tunnel or, or some other empty platitude that might be true. It just doesn't feel good to hear in the moment. But it's important that when we read Paul's words here, we keep in mind that Paul is speaking from experience. He's not speaking in the abstract or in theory. Paul was well acquainted with suffering. He knew what it was like to be beaten and imprisoned for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Paul had experienced being abandoned by close friends. Paul knew what it was like to be hungry. Paul knew what it was like to face difficulty and uncertainty. And through all that, he was convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was worth it. Because of what he knew and had experienced of Jesus, he knew that all the difficulties of this life were not even worth comparing against the future glory. That is to come for those that have been adopted into God's family. One Christian writer has said that in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. And that truth shouldn't cause us to minimize the difficulties of life, but it should cause us to focus on just how great our God is and how good he treats those that, that he calls his children. Our world is broken, and, and Scripture does not shy away from that. But we wait for redemption. Like Paul says in these verses, our world groans. And we groan along with it as we experience the brokenness of this world. Things are not as they should be. And the message of Jesus does not try to ignore that or pretend that it's not real. But what the message of Jesus does is offer us the promise that our groaning will one day give way to glory. We are able to endure the difficulties of this life with expectation because we know that it's not the final word. No matter what we experience in this life, we have the confidence that it does not last forever, that God is able to redeem our suffering, and he's able to redeem us as well. And that is what we get a foretaste of when we come before our God in prayer. I'm not saying that if you just pray a little more, then all of your problems in life will go away. What I am saying is that the God who loves you and has promised to one day restore all things is present with us now. And prayer is the clearest, clearest way where we experience that presence. So if you're faced with hurts and difficulties this morning, our God wants to meet you in prayer. Kids, when you go back to school here in the next week or so and feel confused and overwhelmed and uncertain about what what is going on, know that God is with you. And you can always pray to him. Jesus has come so that we might be adopted into God's family. And we live now with that promise that the Holy Spirit dwells inside us to guide us in the here and now and remind us of the promise of God's presence that goes with us now and for all time. So I set out in this sermon to try to help us see what is available to us in prayer. As we enter into the fall, we enter into a new school year, no matter if that means all of 
your day-to-day routines change or if none of them change at all, Romans 8 shows us that the life, God's invite, the life that God invites us into is available to us right now. And prayer is how we gain access to that. So I hope that no matter what your normal prayer routine might be, like I said, I'm not trying to just give you a to-do list to pray more, but I want you to be encouraged. No matter where you are right now, you can go deeper into your life with God so that you can experience His presence in your day-to-day life. If you think prayer is a waste of time, I hope you can see in this passage that there is more going on in prayer than we might be able to recognize in the moment. Uh, Taking time in prayer, a life in prayer, is less like a get-rich-quick scheme, and it's much more like the regular process of going to the gym with the end goal that over a long period of time we would grow more and more into who God has created us to be. So if you don't prioritize prayer right now because you don't think it's worth it or nothing good comes out of it, this isn't me saying you better pray more or else. This is me encouraging you to lean into prayer, trusting that God is meeting you in those moments because He has called you His son or His daughter. If you don't think your prayer will be answered, I I hope you see in these verses that God's silence does not equal God's absence. God does not always answer our prayers exactly how we would like or exactly how we would expect, but that does not mean He is not listening, and that does not mean He is not intimately involved in our lives. The Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in each and every follower of Jesus, guiding us to be more like Jesus. So don't, do not be afraid to pray big things to God. And yet at the same time, pray those prayers with the knowledge that God is God and we are not. And just as Jesus prayed that God's will would be done, even if it meant him going to the cross, we can pray the same thing, knowing that no matter where we end up, our God goes with us. I want to end this morning with two opportunities that we all have to do. Just what we've talked about this morning, and experience life with God through prayer. So two opportunities coming up for you. The first one is an opportunity to come back here tonight and do just what we've talked about this morning and pray. Uh, We're having our family prayer night tonight here in this room at 4 o'clock to come together as a church family and pray at the beginning of the new school year. And I will say that this is mainly geared for for kids and, ki- and parents of those kids, but having a child is not a prerequisite to be allowed in the building this evening. If you love this church family and care about our kids and just want to come together with your church family and pray for them, we would love to have you here. And above all else, we want to come together so that we can start this new school year as a church family that is seeking the presence of our Father no matter where we might go. And the second opportunity is something you can start today if you would like, and you can do it for as long as you want. I'm not going to keep score. But you all probably know or have figured out, I would hope, that the area code we live in is 507. And I mention that because I want to challenge all of us to set a reminder in our phones for 507 every day. Simply take a minute to stop and pray for our community, to pray for our schools, and to pray for our kids. I mean, we're all on our phones way too much as it is, so we might as well put them to good use, or at least that's how I feel about it. You can do it at 5.07 a.m., you can do it at 5.07 p.m., you can do it at both. I'm, I'm not all that worried about it as long as you're praying. But set a reminder to simply pause wherever you might be at that time each day and pray. Pray that as a church we would be what we have said that we desire to do and be a light in southeast Rochester. Pray that 
that, you're, that this church would be built up uh, as we grow to be more like Jesus and be encouraged that as you're doing that, so are your brothers and sisters. No matter how scattered we might be on any weekday at 5.07 p.m. or a.m., know that you, your brothers and sisters are praying alongside you, even if you're not with them in that moment. And those might seem like some minor things, but my prayer has been and is, is still that they can be ways for each of us to take st- deeper steps into life with our Father, because our Father, our God, is with us, and He invites us into life with Him through the presence of the Spirit when we come before Him in prayer. And so with all that being said about prayer, let's do that now and pray. God, we are grateful that You are present with us everywhere, always, and through Your Spirit, and that we can speak to you directly in our prayers, just as we are doing now. So God, as we enter into a new week as your people, we ask that you would go with us. Remind us of your presence. Help us walk with you wherever that might be. Help us go deeper into your presence. For those of us that don't pray at all, meet us where we are so we can take steps deeper with you. For those of us that feel like we don't pray enough, help us walk where you're leading us. Help us pause and be reminded of your love for us, the fact that you've adopted us, called us your children, and in light of that, help us to be built up through time in prayer with you. We thank you for Jesus who makes it possible for us to pray. We thank you that you are a God who is gracious and meets us in our prayers every time. And it's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.